Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bracken Outdoors podcast. As always, I'm your host Bracken. Now this episode, this interview marks a bit of a shift or a bit of a tangent that I'm planning on taking the podcast down. So when this podcast was originally the Outdoors Voices podcast, my only intention was to have interesting conversations with people who make who are live in the outdoors who spend their time in the outdoors who do great things with the outdoors but now after after it's now 17 episodes plus i started to look at where i want to take the future of the podcast and it's a direction that's already been shifting in already so from this point on you will see a lot more of a focus towards outdoor professionals. My intention is to make the Bracken Outdoors podcast one of the best podcasts out there for people looking to make a living out in the outdoors. It's a very tricky space and it's something that I've been spending a lot of time talking to different people about and a lot of times thinking about because I'm in that space as well where I'm trying to make a living outdoors so that I can have the best lifestyle possible within within the means that, that the industry allows. So it's all about living your best life outdoors. And that fits in with the central ethos of Bracken Outdoors now to equip you with the skills, tools and knowledge and the confidence to be successful in whatever you do in the outdoors. So this particular episode sees a return of Mark Cox to the podcast. Mark Cox was my very first interview back in episode two, where we talked about a bit about his adventures in Peru and all around and basically living adventurously. Now Mark uh, recently moved to Snowdonia and he's having a great time out there working through his mountain leader training so he's looking to take his assessment later in the year so i thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation about how he prepared for the mountain leader training kind of what to expect as you go through mountain leader training for those of you who are looking to add um, the ml award to your um, quiver because well i notice a lot of outdoor instructors do myself included is we tend to have a variety of streams of income because any one stream of income is not necessarily easy to to keep going consistently you have highs and lows seasonally within certain industries everything shifts and turns so having different skill sets different audiences does actually help smooth things out a little bit so if you're thinking of adding mountain leader or you just want to spend some quality time outdoors this is the episode for you so it's a bit of a long one because as as we talk about in the interview mountain leader training is a really broad subject and we do go into quite a bit of depth as we go along but it is filmed and recorded right on the uh, hillside above a beautiful Snowdonia lake. So 
I hope you'll enjoy it. With that, we'll just jump straight in. Mark, welcome back to the Bracken Outdoors podcast. Okay, so before we get into the, the main topic, um, so last time we caught up, you just got back from Peru and yep. you'd had lots of adventures there, yep. but you're right in the center of adventures now. What, what are you up to at the moment? So at the moment I've moved out to North Wales, as you do. <laughs> um, uh, I've done my mountain leader training and uh, yeah, basically working on to uh, get into assessment next. Yeah, so, so where are we? Where are we now? We are in, uh, this is just above Klingwinant. Yes. So uh, we're very short stones throw from Snowden. Yeah, so Snowden is uh, pretty much that way. That, that direction. Yes. Uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful little valley here. It is. And I was about to stay very quiet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we've, we've got a bit of we've got a bit of a breeze going today, so we might get some wind noise on this. But yeah. we couldn't pass up the opportunity to have this as a backdrop. Of course not. So that's again. So, so yeah, we were, we want to kind of catch up and talk a bit about mountain leader training because there, there might be a few people out there who are looking to get into it, and and it, it's it's a lot of work and it's a big investment as well time energy and money so I thought we'd, we'd talk a little bit about your your experiences and and how you how you got to where you are now because you you're looking to take your your assessment later in the year is it yeah i say it's probably going to be sort of late summer possibly sort of october time maybe depending on how we get on um so yeah i've got to do a few more mountain days, uh, more the better, obviously, just in case any of them don't count. Yeah. So, so if we if we start at the very beginning, if someone's looking at mountain leader training, what what are the prerequisites? What do they need to I was do or be? Or... Important thing really is being um, quite fit to begin with. You need to be somebody that's been out in the mountains quite a while. Um, you need to make sure that you know. If you are going to head out for the training, not only are you going to be fit enough, but you've got some of that skill set already. Uh, you need a good base for it, really. It's not the sort of thing where you could go, oh, well, we've done one mountain, I'm going to go and do training now. Uh, you really need to get quite a few under your belt. Um, so, as a minimum, when you begin, you really need to get 20 what they call QMDs. So, standing for Quality Mountain Day. Um, and there is a bit of a criteria for that so you need to be going out you need to be able to display that you know how to navigate out in the mountains that you can deal with some steep ground um, that you can route plan um, that you can plan things like uh, escape routes from the top of the mountains um, you also need to know a little bit about the mountain environment about the kind of flora and fauna that we get out here different types of birds different types of plants um, geology helps uh, really as well just a sort of thing that's going to add value to any kind of leading that you do for people you know um obviously if you go out and uh, you lead in a group and they say oh 
what's this, where are we, and you can't tell them anything, you're not going to be ideal well, as a guide. Yeah. Um, and obviously everyone's got the different things that they enjoy about the mountains. If you have somebody that's a climber, for example, they're going to be interested in the various crags. Some people are going to be interested in the history, which um, North Wales has quite a lot of, mining being a big obvious one for us. Um, weather patterns. Um, so some people are going to be more into their sort of uh, biology. They're going to want to know a little bit about what's going on um, environmentally. Um, and just thinking really about what your group's interested in at the end of the day. So you need to have a bit of knowledge of everything, really, if you're going to be a mountain leader. So is, is there... I mean, I, I, I was surprised by how broad the mountain leader training is. I thought it was pretty much just, OK, how to lead groups in a mountain environment, not so much the, the place and space knowledge. Mm. But is that something that you would need to have before you start the training? Or is it something that, I mean, you need those, you need those logbook qualified mountain days to be able to go on the training, right? Yeah, exactly. And you, so you have to log those. How much other knowledge do you need before you start? I think that you need to be uh, quite an enthusiast. Is probably the best way of putting it. So, so more more temperament than. Yeah, you you need to have fairly decent navigation skills to go on the training. You don't need to be an absolute expert, but you need to really need know how to use a map and compass and how to route plan, and you know how to make your way around in the mountains. I mean, bearing in mind as well, the training is a training course. You're not graded on it. It's literally a case of you do the training and your pass is the fact that you complete it so there's no marking at the end of it there's no grading it's a case of getting on it in the first place and it's kind of your qmds are proving the fact that you know this and that you've written about it um i mean an important thing with the qmds as well is to remember yes there's a minimum of 20 but you want to do probably a few more than that i mean for me i did about 38 because um, yeah. not every single day is going to be accepted by your instructor as a quality mountain day, you know. Um, yeah, it's what, what is the definition of quality? Well, yeah. quality can come down to a couple of different things. Uh, obviously, problem solving when it comes down to things like navigation. So, did you get lost? Well, how did you fix that? Uh, how are you going to get off the mountain if there's a problem? Uh, did you check the weather? Weather reports are really important. Using uh, most of us tend to use MWIS, which is the mountain, uh, mountain weather. Yeah, got that bit. <laughs> which is the mountain weather information service. They're quite decent forecast. So they'll uh, they'll send out leaders into the mountains. We'll do the forecast of the following days. Bearing in mind, obviously, it's very changeable out here. You want to be checking that forecast fairly often. Um, also, whether you're pushing yourself physically is a big thing. Is that yeah. what made it a quality day? Did you do a longer distance? Uh, did you camp out there? Did you go out? Did you notice any plants or any animals that you hadn't seen before? How did you identify them? Yeah. Did you know what weather front was coming in? Any of these kind of things are quite useful. Um, did you identify anything that a potential client might find interesting? Is there a copper mine nearby? How old is it? You know, is there a bit of a history for the route? Um, Wales, in particular, is quite well known for a lot of its sort of folklore. So general folklore. I mean, being so close to uh, Snowdon, 
Well, I say Snowden, as you probably know, it's been uh, officially renamed now. Well, not Is renamed, it? it's always been, yeah. if I can pronounce it, Arista. Arista. <laughs> or Arista. I'm not very good at speaking Welsh yet, but that's another thing that's quite important on the mountain leader stuff, is knowing how to speak, actually say the names of the places and what they mean. Yeah, I mean, well, Welsh is tricky, I, I was like... with <laughs> Ra, uh, if I'm saying it correctly, is actually the tomb, um, which goes back to the legend of King Arthur. Uh, I won't go deep into that, but people can look that up. Yeah, so... So presumably with, with these qualified uh, mountain days, quality mountain days, the, what they're looking for is, is variety. So you can't go up the same mountain 20 times. No. It's, it's like, okay, what I've, is this a day where you've actually pushed yourself and learned something? Yeah, it is that. And for me especially, an instructor's not gonna be that interested if I say I've just gone up the miners track of Snowden. Um, it's not what would be considered particularly challenging and that's not me doing down any people that are novices or anything like that but as a mountain leader you need to be able to show that you're actually thinking about alternative routes yeah and it's not always necessarily going for set routes either um, some mountains especially if we're talking about um, the Rinox for example not really very well pathed make a very good mountain day or an expedition because really the trails up there are very patchy if almost non-existent and that's going to really count quite well towards your sort of mountain days anyway um, you can easily get a QMD out of something like that but a well-known trail that a lot of people do, you're not going to be able to do that multiple times. It's not going to impress the uh, training guys. It's not going to impress the instructors. Yeah, and, and you're, not re you're not really learning and you, you kind of, you, you're probably going to struggle more during the training if you haven't really learnt a good deal before then. Mm, yeah. I mean, you've have, with any training, if you come in at a, at a decent level, you'll get more out of it. Oh, exactly. Yeah, because you're going to know the questions that you want to ask. You're going to be able to get a bit more knowledge from the trainings, uh, from the um, instructors. Yeah, and, and from what you've, you've been say, talking, what we've been talking about before this, this episode, um, it's, it's also pretty physically demanding and you've got to be prepared for it. And if, that if you're all, all you're focusing on during the training is keeping up physically, then you're also not going to get a lot out of it. Yes, you can struggle a bit. Um, I think there's probably going to be a few people that go on for mountain leader training and they potentially won't realise how physical it is. Um, it's not a lot on consecutive days, but it's six days out in the wilderness. Uh, you're not necessarily going to be camping all the time. There is an expedition part of it. However, even a small amount in the mountains every day for six days, it's going to tie you out, even if you are quite fit, you know? Um, I know, as an enthusiast, you might go out, especially if you don't live in the mountains like I do, you might go out every other week or you might go out every other month. So six days is going to hit you. Yeah. I mean, is is the if 
Do you have any recommendations or kind of guidelines for, for getting fit for something like this? I mean, I don't think there's any substitute for just going up as many mountains as possible. I think it is a difficult thing for some people that don't live out in these kind of areas um, or close to them. Uh, you do get a few people that are city-based, which I was originally, that are interested in becoming mountain leaders. Uh, really, you want to get out, you want to walk as often as you can. Yeah. Um, and you want to take out the sort of gear that you would have out in the mountains. Yeah, um, get the weight in. and Yeah, get used to that weight. Um, you might not need all of it, but at the end of the day, if you've got it all with you, you're going to kind of not necessarily use it if you don't live in a mountainous area, but you're going to get used to that weight. And also, it's giving you practice packing that bag as well, which is yeah. an important thing. Bad packing is not going to really work for you. <laughs> no, you, you, need, you need the stuff to hand and you need to weight distribution. Well, I mean, for me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm city-based, it's not very many hills around Birmingham and so I, I tend to focus a lot on, on building core strength, so particularly in the legs. Um, I think for, for mountain and hill walking, good musculature around your knees is pretty, is pretty critical. Yeah. You, you're going to do better if you have strong legs and knees. Yeah, and you're going to get that really from just doing any kind of a sense. I know there's people that train for these kind of things. You know, you'll get the free peak challenges that spend weeks on step machines, things like that. They're not really ideal because they're not really putting you through the unevenness of ground, you know, yeah. kind of twist the twists of ankles, things like that. You're going to build up that kind of strength and your balance and so on by actually coming out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, what? The, I think the biomechanics call a static load on a stem machine mm. versus a dynamic load when you're on the hill because yeah. yeah. your foot is flexing every step you're taking your legs are loaded in a different your muscles are loaded in a different way mm. different angles and good all round flexibility and strength yeah really important I mean one of the most common reasons for being mountain rescued is lower leg injuries uh, I can I mean, imagine. You can look up the stats that Mountain Rescue have and generally it's not things like extreme injury, you know, head injuries, things like that. It's generally people that are going out that have got fairly weak ankles or knees and they end up getting like hairline fractures, things like that, twisted ankles, which uh, will really slow them down or completely stop them and then they need to get rescued. So if you've been spending six months on a Stairmaster, and you're not used to the fact that your yeah. legs, ankles, everything are going to get twisted all over the place. So you, you can get surprised. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I mean, there they are things that you can do, but really what we're saying is, is no substitute for just getting up a hill. Go out and do it. It's the same the, the climbers say is the best sort of training for climbing is climbing, you yeah. know? <laughs> So, so, so what we're saying, in preparation, you want to get physically fit, get your qualified mountain days and start thinking about um, getting good local knowledge yeah. and so on. So, how, so what, what, what does it look when you actually, so you book on your, your training, you turn up, what, 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 what's, how do we, where do we start? So it might be slightly different structure for 
each different sort of instructor obviously it depends on a lot about what area you're in what weather's going to hit because that can change the plan um, but from what we had the first day is that uh, you get together with your instructor and you all have a chat about where you're all at you know what kind of skills you've already got what you want to work on um, and then it's pretty much um, a breakdown of what's going to happen over the next couple of days um, which we'll go into in a bit um, and then you head straight out into the hills you'll do a sort of a bit of a mountain day but nothing serious you're not going to be summiting or anything um, we sat down and we had a talk about gear for a start um, which is really important um, as you well know it's different for every different scenario um, different for bushcraft for example to going out as a mountain leader yeah um, um, i mean that's that's part partly because of the mountain environment so you you're very exposed there's not very many resources to hand there's not a lot of shelter so you kind of have to bring everything with you, you yeah you can't just as, as we do bushcraft just light a fire or or whatever you you're pretty much on the side of the mountain exposed you're going to need to bring your own shelter bring your own protection bring your own food warmth the whole shebang so i mean what we straight away spoke about and obviously you and me have both got a background in sort of uh, outdoor equipment sales so we know quite a lot about this um getting decent gear and i think it's really important i say it's not about being elitist with the gear a lot of people seem to think that getting an expensive bit of kit uh, is not necessary but if you're actually fairly serious about it you want to get the best you can get i mean you have to think about the fact that the more that you go out in the mountains the uh, more at risk you are really um, they are dangerous environments um, if you go out once a month you're not going to see the same sort of things that i probably will when i'm going out every other day or you know two three times in a week you're going to get different scenarios all the time um obviously footwear is the first thing that you need to think about um, as you can probably see i'm wearing approach shoes and i absolutely love these um, but clients might get the idea that they're trainers they are not trainers but uh, really you don't want to be wasting your time explaining the differences to your clients so really you need to get yourself a decent sturdy pair of boots to work um, you want to have yeah. them fitted properly uh, one of the worst things can be that you've got ill-fitting footwear or not the correct kind of footwear they might want to get you know some people out there might think let's go out and spend 350 pounds on a pair of boots well are they the right type of boots now you're not going to want to really be going out in a set of b2s or something like that um, there are mountain leaders that do uh, really you need something that's a decent sort of trekking hiking boot uh, yeah. not too heavy you don't want it to be really uh, well nothing too stiff either personally that's a preference for me um, I want to go for something that is sort of mid-weight and sort of mid-ankle boot that fits me properly that's not going to yeah. cause me blisters because you, you know six days out there if you have an issue with your footwear you're going to find out fairly quickly yeah you know. i mean i mean footwear is a, a real rabbit hole to to get to go down but yeah. essentially you, you you're pairing the the right boot for your experience level of fitness and then making sure it's well fitted it's the right size for you the right width and last and everything else 
So if you don't know how to do that, get someone who really knows what they're doing to guide you through it. May well do uh, a video or something in that in the future. Everybody has their preferences, but what you want to go for really is you want to go for a boot that's not too heavy. Uh, you want it to be fairly tough, but not something that's a really big clomping boot at the end of the day. Something that's got a bit of flex on it. I like to have something that's got a climbing edge, but I am a bit of a scrambler, but that that is personal preference really. Um, but yeah, something that's comfortable at the end of the day. Um, durable but not overly heavy yeah if, if you go spend on on one thing it's yeah good good pair of boots and then probably next would be waterproofs yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say well we, even before we go into waterproofs probably socks as well yeah decent yeah. socks something that's uh, gonna keep your feet fairly comfortable and you want to take a couple of pairs of socks with you really yeah something that's gonna reduce blisters a little bit um, something that's not too hot depending obviously the time of year that you're going out but generally a sort of you know mid-weight sock it's good all round or something like that and a few of them um, your feet are probably going to get wet at some point um, unless you're using gaiters which are always an option for going through like our sort of marshy areas which will happen you can't really yeah. avoid it out here but, but feet yeah you really do want to look after them I, I try not to leave Anyway, if I'm, if I'm going away for a longer trip, there's always a spare pair of socks because you never know what you go run into, water crossings or whatever. You, and you want to look after your feet because they go carry you off the mountain. Blister plasters, always an absolute must. Yep. Or, uh, you know, anything to kind of tape your feet back together. Um, you'll soon find out if your footwear's not right because you'll start losing toenails. So, <laughs> yeah, so get, yeah, try and get it right first time. <laughs> yeah, but again, that all comes with experience as well. It's knowing the right sort of thing for your feet um, and not just assuming, don't assume you're a certain size. Go and ask somebody that knows what they're doing yeah. at the end of the day. Um, I mean, next up, we might as well just sort of work up the body decent set of hiking trousers now i mean as you can see me and bracken are both wearing fjall raven at the moment they are absolutely lovely they do some great track trekking trousers are they yeah. the right thing for you potentially um i mean yeah. for me i quite like going for something like a set of montane terror pants nice and lightweight fast drying um that's something that's quite important thin fabric doesn't need to be overly warm but does need to have uh, a vent system on it really i'd say for me yep, absolutely um most of the trousers that are decent will have vents in them usually down the sides um obviously the weather's very changeable and it can go from being pretty cold to being really warm very yeah. quickly and you can you you hit a a steep slope where you suddenly need to shed layers and vent it off and then as soon as you get up to the summit you the wind comes in and you're suddenly zipping everything up and popping layers back on mm. time of year as well obviously you've got to think about those base layers uh, merino wool is nice um, if you're going to be out for multiple days um, i'd say certain conditions may be a little bit too warm but again personal preference yeah uh, are you a sort of hot person or a cold person um, yeah for me I'm, I'm wearing like uh, one of the icebreaker combination merino and uh, nylon hmm. fibers so good sort of a uh, bit of both bit better of, the best of both worlds yeah, really but then i get really cold really easily i don't get too hot very often so it's perfect for me hmm. whereas if i was going out middle of summer and i knew it was going to be like 
20 plus degrees, I'd be going fully synthetic for a day, day hike. Synthetic stuff, I mean, brilliant. If you're going to be going out just for a single QMD, something like that, on the actual training, I'd say it's probably good to go for sort of the thing that you're wearing at the moment, which is uh, a bit of burrito wool. It's not going to smell that much over a couple of days, and it's still going to wick out properly if you've got, say, uh, synthetic blended in there as well. A um, couple of those, always a good shout. Um, also, you've got to think about if they do get wet, are you going to be able to dry them off? Yeah, yeah, you don't want something that's going to be getting soaking damp and weighing down your bag. Um, so that leggings and a top potentially. Um, and then moving on, you want to look at something like a range of different fleeces depending on the weather. Uh, obviously I've got one of the Rab ones on at the moment. It's quite a thin sort of micro fleece. Um, really good at wicking. Um, wind goes straight through it, but underneath... Uh, a decent sort of insulated they're quite warm uh, again preference are you hot or cold most of the time yeah. um, fleeces I'd probably be real careful with because they tend to take up a lot more space than other things always having something like an insulated layer so G-Lay really good sort of best of both worlds so nice cool arms free unlikely to get your sleeves caught on much because there isn't any <laughs> Yeah, um, something like that um, nothing that's too heavy either you want to go for something and again is not like super heavyweight winter style you want to go for something that's kind of in between quite a thin one um, I forget the name of this particular one but it's a nice mountain equipment one keeps the wind off for at least the main part of me you know if I am working with ropes or anything like that there's far less stuff to get yeah. in the way I mean there's a difference about how you're layering up for say winter your winter mountaineering and your your kind of more uh, regular mountain walking that we're, we're talking about now so you you don't really need a down jacket that's that's going to withstand all of the elements because it's going to go underneath a layer and down it's nice to be honest for north wales where we get quite a lot of rain down might not necessarily be the perfect thing at least if you go something yeah. that's synthetic you know that's still going to keep you pretty warm i mean there are hydrophobic down jackets these days but i mean personally for me even though it's a little bulkier i know that at least my synthetic's going to keep doing the job all the way through yeah. you know um so that's that stage and then you've got to think about your waterproofs. So um, really important just generally because they're going to keep the wind off. Um, good example of wind so far. <laughs> and now it's gone all sunny. <laughs> um, Gore-Tex, general standard go-to for most people. Doesn't need to be a heavyweight jacket. Arcteryx makes some really nice sort of lightweight trekking jackets, hiking jackets. They're nice, packed yeah. down quite small. So just thinking about that sort of space you've got in your pack, you don't yeah. need to have Mont some... Montaigne do some quite nice ones. Montaigne well, yeah. do some really nice ones as well. There's loads of other brands, Burger, so on, that do do decent ones too. A uh, bit of a much of a muchness, but you want something that's, uh, you know, it's got a fairly high hydrostatic head, something that's not like super lightweight. Pretty much Gore-Tex, isn't yeah, it? I yeah, I think Gore-Tex is always, i say, your go-to point. Get a decent Gore-Tex jacket, it's going to cost you maybe about 200 quid yeah. upwards, um, but it'll last you 10 years. 
so it's well worth the money. Yeah, look, um, looked after. I mean, Gore-Tex, it's not just about the, the weatherproof, it's the durability of the membrane yeah. over time. Yeah, and it's, just that breathability as well. Something ideally for me, if I'm spending a lot of time out in the mountains, I'm doing quite a lot of hard work. I want to get something that's got pit zips in, something that's got good vents at least, yeah. you know, uh, and packs down fairly small. Um, obviously hats, gloves, yeah. really important. All, well. all through the year, no matter what you think it's going to be like, it's yeah. always worth, I mean, even if it's just a thin pair that packs down to like that, you, you're going to, at some point, you probably will need those layers. You want to look at backup stuff as well, so don't just go out with one pair of gloves, there's a fairly good chance you're going to lose one of them you know <laughs> yeah you can get waterproof gloves personally i'd say that that's always recommended when you're out somewhere like north wales or scotland uh, you're going to get wet at some point even on the good days you're going to get showers yeah. you know um so for me i'd go for something that's kind of in between i usually go for something like the montane wind jam is a really good glove quite thin they gore-tex infinium so they're like a soft shell very very weather resistant uh, and then maybe go for something like a thin glove, something that's just like a base layer glove, and even get yourself a heavier pair of warmer gloves as well, just in case. Just have that range, because if you lose any yeah. of them, you're going to need something else. There's nothing worse than trying to get maps, compasses out when your hands are frozen. It's really not cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's, that's kind of the, the basic rundown. Uh, I'm, I'm weary of making this a bit too too much about the, the gear yeah. clothing because it's a good, we've got a lot to get through. So if we can just quickly run through like a list of extra of, stuff of yeah. extra stuff that you should be thinking about or needing. Maps, compasses. So you need I'd go for your at least laminated um, OS maps. Yeah. Uh, you can go for a map case. Mountain leaders will tell you not really to have the strap on because, uh, well, you'll get strangled yeah. with it when it gets windy. Um, you want to get a couple of different maps as well. Uh, they're going to want to know that you can use more than one scale. So something like yeah. a Harvey map, like an XT40, uh, something smaller, because they do do smaller maps as well, um, which are going to give you more sort of detail of the actual mountain, less of the kind of stuff that you get on an OS map, which is all churches and things. I don't need to know where the church is, really, when I'm yeah. out there. Um, some people might want to, I don't. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, a couple of different ones of those anyway. You can't, could you lose maps or even getting a subscription to OS maps and doing small sections always very useful. Um, decent compass. Again, you might not think of this. Get two compasses. Decent yeah. ones. You want to look like a, something like a Silver Expedition 4, I think. At least that. Um, I mean, as a good example, when we were out on our mountain leader training, uh, one of the guys snapped his compass in half. Um, just lost yeah. his footing straight away one compass down not ideal um, yeah you gotta rely on it so map marking pens uh, so something that's like a fine nib indelible you can always uh, if you get yourself the laminated maps you can always remove the marks using a bit of nail polish it's always useful nail polish um, remover yeah first aid kit really important um, on your training you want to just take yourself a personal one that's got all the sort of things that you need in it just a basic first aid kit really you only need to worry about the bigger ones when you actually start leading um, yeah, water hydration packs are always good 
uh, water bottles as well. Which one's easier to fill is always going to be a yeah. question. You want to get how yourself how much you're a, carrying and yeah. Yeah, um, really important. I'd say your basic water filter. So for a soil mini or a trail shot or anything like that's good. Something that's fairly small. Uh, fairly convenient as well um, if you have something like that then you need to carry far less in terms of water which is one of the heaviest things you can carry as you well know yeah. um, or if you don't have that water sterilisation tablets which are not that nice no, uh, I, I know which one I'd prefer <laughs> yeah, um, but they're an option as well, they'll take up even less weight, but yeah um, yeah, no. personal preference do you like pool water? no? Yeah. well then get a, get a <laughs> yeah um, camping stove, something small, uh, something that's going to be fairly lightweight, carryable. Um, I, if you're a, an ex-scout, you probably have a Transia. I wouldn't really recommend taking one. No, that, that, that's more group uh, proper cooking kit. It's not really yeah. heat up water quickly on the side of a mountain. It's yeah, you want to sweet. make it quite easy and think about the food that you're carrying as well. So something that's just dried. You can get obviously your pre-prepared food that's great lighter weight if you get something that's not wet you can take the wet ones yeah. if you want they're not all that nice tasting um, you can quite easily just take things like pasta and fruit and nuts and things like that out with you you yeah. know um, again preference but you want to get stuff that's fairly high energy really if you can get it energy bars things like that it's pointless taking things like uh, energy gels if you're them off and running you can if you want to <laughs> yeah i mean i mean that's that might be not not a bad idea to kind of toss one or two in the back pocket for emergencies to get you that burst of energy to get you down the mountain if you run out yeah exactly a few snacks things like that always good just make sure that you've got enough food to keep you going for a couple of days um and then uh I'd say that you also want to think about uh, just having any spare layers as well. Just dry bags, a couple of dry bags are fairly essential, they're quite useful. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pack covers aren't, aren't the be-all and end-all, you, you want mm. to protect the important stuff t twice really. Yeah, and then you've got to think about your sleeping system as well. Uh, which is a thing that we haven't got to yet. Yeah, um, I, I, I think we'll, 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 leave, we'll leave sleeping systems because that I mean that that's a big subject it is on a big itself subject, so but, i mean to break it down simply you get yourself a nice lightweight sort of backpacking tent um and you want to get yourself you know a fairly lightweight sort of sleep mat and the lightweight kind of sleeping bag something that's going to keep you warm and you've got to think it could easily get down to like zero degrees less out here so you want something that goes down fairly low but you don't want like a big bulky sleeping bag either yeah it's, it's worth sleeping bags it's really worth looking at, at if you like we say same with the waterproof and stuff if you're serious about this it's well worth investing quite a decent amount in a sleeping bag a good sleeping bag is going to last you years and years and it, uh, you, you'll spend less in the long run not upgrading it every two three years yeah uh, and then i mean the last last of all really uh walking poles really important you know you want to take those with you anyway you never know when you might twist an ankle something like that and they yeah. do have other uses uh, and think about the backpack that you're taking really um you want to get yourself fairly lightweight sort of 
about 30 litre day pack and you want to get probably about a 60 litre, 65 litre sort of uh, expedition pack as well and that pretty yeah. much covers you. you. You're going to be carrying a bit more stuff when, when you're mountain leading so you, you don't want to go down to your, your 20 litre and stuff. You want, no, exactly. you, want, you want a bit of space spare because you are going to be carrying a bit more stuff. Yeah, well... Um, apart from that, so yeah, your day one, they'll take you out, they'll get you, give you an idea about what sort of stuff you should be carrying as we just have there. Um, and then you'll go out and you'll probably do a little bit of navigation practice and talk about the landscape, talk about, you know, wildflowers. One of the big things is I uh, want you to identify, for example, like Tormentil, which is one of the mountain flowers, which kind of does what it says. It's, uh, it's used to torment illnesses. So um, that's an important one. They'll get you to identify different warts, like mugwort, so on, things like that. Um, and just general sort of local birds. I mean, you and me saw a few yesterday, stone chats yeah, and so, so on. Um, ring um You might identify some birds of prey, but they, you don't see them that often. Um, things like that, really. Um, and your first day will be kind of like a gentle easing. Yeah, it's kind of probably probably for the leaders, uh, the, for the trainers to kind of get an idea of where everyone is, whether they're what, whether they actually their perceived skill level is and really their actual skill level, yeah. how fit they are, and before they kind of launch into the rest of the week. The point that usually gets most people is always going to be in the navigation. So I mean, the you know navigation for mountain leaders is pretty precise. Yeah, um, it can't be. I think it's over there. Um, I don't remember exactly the amount of accuracy, but I think it's something like within about 20 meters or something like that. Um, so second day, really. I mean, we went out, for example, onto uh, Cataridris, lovely little mountain. Uh, met up with some of the guys that were actually doing their assessment. Um, we went out and we spoke about group management. So yeah, how are you going to manage the slowest person in the group? Um, yeah, how are you going to pace things? Um, I mean, sometimes you might go, oh, I'm going to pet off really quickly, and you will have a tendency to do that if you're quite, you know, if you're quite experienced, you do. You need to dole that right back, really, and just think about how quickly the group's moving. Um, planning breaks as well, so whether you're faffing about or not. So you can have people doing sort of random, oh, well, hold on, I need to get something out of the bag. Uh, ten people do that really slows you down one bit after another. Um, so trying to encourage people to do stop all at the same time and adult do their stuff at the same time. Making sure they're eating might seems like seems a little bit like uh, an obvious one, but some people won't eat, and you want to make sure that all the groups got energy. Yeah. Um, thinking about and just watching the group and seeing who's comfortable with heights, exposure, things like that. Do we need to put them in front of us? Do we need to put them in the middle? Do they need to be with one of the instructors? So, so, so it's almost like the process where the the mountain leaders are, the the, train, the training instructors are taking you out, yeah. but really you you've kind of a mix of both student and you're also kind of assessing the rest of the group and mm. starting to think about okay, group dynamics. How would I handle this group as a leader? Yeah. And it's and they, are, they you, are you kind of encouraged to, to kind of take the lead at points? Yeah. And uh, so you take turns at leading over various points during the day and over the week. Um, so they'll 
watch how you do it and they'll kind of point out what you're doing. I mean, for example, there was a girl in that group that kept on shooting off quite far ahead and they were like, we can't do this to the group because person at the back is going to start getting a little bit frustrated it's uh, once that kind of spiral begins um, they can become demotivated um, yeah. then you've got the group being potentially slowed down even more or somebody that's just not enjoying the day you know um, so really just keeping an eye on the guys and uh, speaking to them as well so keeping that verbal communication between everybody in the group how you doing um, you know how you feeling how's your energy levels you drinking enough yeah things like that the, the interpersonal side of things yeah, yeah. you're going to do that with some groups more and some groups less so just keeping an eye on them really i mean that's the thing you've got a lot of stuff going on all at the same time um navigation as well so just reading the landscape having a look um having a look for sort of like your blue features uh, your black features and also like your brown features so all, and so, the different importance of all these things so you know, black features such as man-made things and the discussion of how useful is this um, is this always going to be here can we rely on it as a navigational aid yes we can but as much as say a blue feature big lakes i mean as you can see we've got a massive blue feature behind us i mean that's unlikely to change much in shape or anything like that considering it's been here for so long um but you've also got to look at the quality of those features as well um, out here it can rain quite heavily torrentially easily turn small streams into more than one stream and then your navigation's out the window yeah if, if you say counting the streams on the path and uh, six more have sprung up you you're going to be a bit yeah out of, out of place yeah. it's happened before as well and then uh, the most reliable feature being sort of like your brown features your contours um, generally your mountains things like that um, they're always going to be pretty much the same unless there's some sort of catastrophic event um, so yeah just using a combination of all those and using them to approximate where you are exactly um, obviously flora fauna even down to geology as well it's like well are we in the right place what are the rocks like are the trees the correct trees so on yeah uh, and uh, I mean as we did over the day as well it's just uh, all having a crack at navigation all sitting down discussing different things such as uh, we even got down to geology how the lakes are formed glacial movement things like that just general discussion I mean, that, that, that allows you to interpret the landscape a bit more it, yeah. if you understand how something arrives in the shape that it does you can make it you can make an educated guess as to well, what what sort of direction you, it's pointing in, or or what sort of feature you're likely to see further down the trail. Yeah, and uh, it's really sort of about when you're route planning and when you're actually walking the route, sort of playing the story out in your head. But what am I going to say? Uh, also, just getting the group to do that as well. So you're kind of teaching each other at the same time. Um, so on the third day we uh, headed out and we uh, didn't have particularly great weather uh, we went out and we went around the uh, forests down uh, sort of mid Wales 
and did a bit of navigation around there and saw the differences between navigating through forest and mountain terrain. Sometimes they can be one of the same. Um, and again, uh, just going through the different sort of uh, ins and outs of how much more difficult it is navigating in terrain such as forests where there's a lot less sort yeah. of stuff to go off, you know. Um, spoke about mountain boffies, actually uh, spent a bit of time near one of those. Um, and you also have to learn about the different organisations that are involved with uh, mountain leaders, so, such as the BMC, the British Mountaineering Council. Uh, also the Mountain Training Association as well and what they do um, so this is all stuff that you need to know uh, there are other bits such as uh, you know what different kind of levels of training there are so you've got international mountain leader winter mountain uh, sort of winter mountain leader uh, I mean as example what we're talking about now when I say mountain leader we're talking about the summer mountaineering yeah. Award, um, um, which is slightly loosely termed, because when they say summer, they it can even be up until winter. Yeah, but they're not talking about full winter conditions. Their crampons, ice axes. Yeah, th that that's kind of where they draw the line. Is uh, yes, you're not looking at. So if, if there's if there's major snow on the ground. It, it's, it changes. You can still Sorry. use these days towards your summer mountaineering qualification. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're a level above. They are a level above. Um, but really it's more sort of talking about these kind of conditions out here, which can be anything really sometimes. Um, okay, so so, we, so far we've, we've talked about the the components so there was uh, navigation there was kind of the interpersonal leading people mm. talked about moving on different terrains the equipment the kind of bigger picture with organizations you involved in uh, how much do they talk about some stuff like first aid first aid uh, yeah we do speak quite a bit about first aid uh, you need to learn how to uh, obviously the general patching people up um, you need to get a 16-hour first aid qualification as part of it. Um, How advanced does that does that need to be? An outdoor-specific, mountain-specific, or yeah. what? It helps to have done like a normal first aid course at first. You know, most people will have access to a first aid at work. They'll give you a good starter, um, yeah. and then you do the 16-hour, and it really is sort of mountain-based. So the one I did was uh, Peak District, and you look at how actually you can apply your first aid techniques when you're on sort of rough, uneven ground, and in certain situations, um, such as you know dehydration. Um, how are you going to deal with people that have potentially forgotten the medication on the side of the mountain? Um, have people that, m that might have diabetes, things like that. Also, how are you going to deal with lower leg injuries? How are you going to uh, sort of doing splints and so on? Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's completely different beast. I mean, on your first aid work, I will give you the basics, but if you're doing that in a city, chances are that, that it's going to be very much based around, okay, what what do we do with a casualty when an ambulance is going to be here in 10 minutes? Yeah. Whereas on the side of the mountain, you are looking at potentially hours. It can be hours, yeah. I mean, we also talk about the mountain rescue aspect and how you would look at 
contacting Mountain Rescue. I mean, we're quite lucky out here in Snowdonia that we've got a number of different um, sort of mountain rescue teams. So obviously there's uh, my friends at uh, Clanberris Mountain Rescue. Um, they do an absolutely brilliant job out here. Um, probably the busiest area in Wales here. They're out constantly. You've also got the Coast Guard that get involved. Um, there's a number of different uh, sort of uh, air ambulance services uh, and also you've got the RAF as well that all get kind of involved in rescue out here. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, that's an important thing. It's always going to be quite useful for the viewers as well is knowing that actually Mountain Rescue is a subsidiary like um, of they act almost like uh, a deputy of the police out here so you need to contact the police first and then they pass you on to mountain rescue and ask you all the questions that they're going to ask you about the casualty um, you're going to need to know how to uh, do an assessment how to find out what's actually going on with somebody and pass that information on to the mountain rescue team before they come and rescue you um, but as you say i mean uh, from experience it can be anything up to sort of like six or upwards hours for them to scramble a team um they are volunteers they have to be called up they have to get together at the mountain rescue hut and then come together with their own plans um so yeah knowing what to do uh, when you're actually getting rescued by helicopter as well so the trainers will tell you about different signals that you can give for helicopters about how to prepare an area for when you've got downdraft when the helicopters come yeah. in to get you um, and just generally staying safe um, that's another subject we could talk about for an hour um, yeah, easily so um, but it gives you an idea about what you need to look into it's important if you're heading out there that you know how to contact these teams in case it yeah. may not and be and you. that's that's <laughs> another reason why your navigation needs to be spot on yeah. you need to be able to relay accurately where you are yeah uh, i mean there are the good thing with the mountain rescue teams these days is they do actually use things like they can send a text message to your phone that will allow you to turn on your phone they'll get a gps beacon to you but that's always assuming that you've got a battery going uh, yeah. that's another preparation thing that you want to stick in your kit something that you can charge your phone with spare batteries or even just a rubbish old phone that's got a ridiculously long battery life anything like that is always going to be very useful um, you'll go through actually how to perform sort of uh, moving casualties outside so using say you can use your shelter your emergency shelter put them on top of it and have a team grab it from all sides and walk them out different ways of carrying a, a casualty such as you can actually uh, sort of use the rope which is another technique we could talk yeah. about for quite a while to actually yeah. lift them with um, so you'll go into a lot of that um, you'll talk about river crossings as well um, and why generally they're best avoided but they are in there <laughs> yeah um, yeah it is really quite involved um, but they want to know that you know about all the organizations that work out in the mountains as well and what's available to you and what to do if there is a problem um, uh, and then I guess the, the, the next thing to talk about would be the expedition stage. So at the expedition stage, it's exactly what it sounds like. You'll be out for probably about, I'd say maybe about a day and a half, maybe at least yeah. 12 hours or more, I'd say. You're going you're gonna to be camping out on the hill. Um, as I say, for us, it was the Rinogs. It wasn't particularly great weather. 
and at that point on your expedition um, they get you usually to do a bit of night navigation which is one of the, the I'd say one of the hardest things to pick up um, you'd be looking at micro navigation things like that in the dark um, it's quite difficult it's something that you're going to want to practice after you've done the training anyway and also you're going to be looking at camping choosing campsites how to set up a tent how to choose a camping spot all those skills which you should potentially have by this point anyway um, so that's something that you'll need to practice as well uh, actually expedition days and camp outs are things that are going to count towards your Q&Ds as well so you want to get out and do some of those as well um, choosing camping spots knowing safe places to put tents knowing where to get water again yeah. another subject that can get quite involved um, so you, you're using all these skills while you're out there yeah so so if you if you get a head start on some of these beforehand you you go have an easier time of it during during the, the training yeah and i think the important thing to get out of it as well is like uh, i don't think it's possible to overdo the preparation for the training because i think that if you get to the training stage and you're already quite knowledgeable there's, you've got more room to pick more stuff up but you're going to be yeah. more relaxed and you're going to have more time and you're going to potentially get more out of that training than if you go in there with less experience and you're yeah. learning the kind of things that everybody else already knows then yeah it's going to be a bit less sort of useful to you you know um, you want to get out and get some of these skills you don't need to get them perfect but have knowledge of them and practice them before you get to that stage you know, because all these skills are going to need to be shown in much greater sort of uh, detail when you actually do your assessment. And then, I guess finally, it's just moving on to how you actually do things like D-logs. So digital logbook, which is used by uh, the Mountain Training Association. Um, when you actually go on there is, and the right sort of detail to put in. So there's things that, as we were discussing earlier, you might not think about uh, the decisions that you make while you're out in the hills, what you go and see, and what essentially is making a quality mountain day. Um, not really waffling on too much when you write in your logbook. So you can put stuff in there, um, but you've got to think about how much the trainer is actually going to read. Yeah, and and there's 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 stuff that, that they don't really need to know, mm. but there's others other things just just. Just really try and nice keep the, the, the pertinent information <laughs> in there so that it's so it's clear what what how you got into the situation that you did, what your thought process was, and then how you got out of it. Kind of just just staying very logical and focused. Yeah. I'd say. I mean, as you and me have spoken about before, um, you know, it's the same really on any sort of training course or any whenever you're heading out into the mountains, forests, any anything lowland, upland is always having an idea about what your plan is and what you're intending to get out of it so for me i'll tend to write a paragraph at the start and actually put a d-log in before i head out to do what i'm gonna do they'll have a list of what i'm trying to do you know uh, that i want to practice doing like half bearings or you know i um I want to try and try this trial I've not done or I want to push myself more physically than I have done on other times. Um, or I want to identify this particular sort of ge ge uh, geological feature. Um, these are my goals. And then putting anything else in. 
And having that an idea about what you're going to do is always going to be quite important anyway. So at least you can go off and you can tick off things, you know. Um, really important to have a plan before you go out because you're not necessarily always going to get what you're looking for. Um, very changeable weather, you could get lost, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then I guess at the end of it, it's just kind of putting all that together and writing something for trainers that's going to count as a quality mountain day, that you've got a number of different things in there and you can say you really got something out of it. Um, can't be, as we've said, just to walk up the minders path doing the same thing all the time. You've got to show that you've learned something from it, that you've improved on the skills that you've had before, if you've hit any problems, how you've dealt with those. Um, I mean, one important thing to know as well uh, is when you do finally go on to do your assessment that getting lost isn't necessarily a terrible thing as long as you can explain to the instructors that this is why it happened, this is what I would have done instead and actually this would have got us there. That is potentially better than just getting it right because yeah. you've shown your ability to learn and to problem solve. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not expecting perfection, but they, I mean, that's that's a quality of a, I'd say, of a good leader or guide is someone who can deal with things when they go wrong. Yeah, exactly. Because anyone can be a fair weather leader uh, if it, and just walk up the, the ranger path onto Snowdon, fine, but it, it takes someone special if the if the fog descends and you're on the wrong side of the mountain knowing what to do in that situation being able to walk through a good process to get yourself and your team out mm, it's critical exactly. i think it's important to just know that there's a it's a quite a large subject and there's a lot of different skills there's a lot of wildlife out there that you can identify there's a lot of navigation techniques uh, and that you've got to have a fairly decent knowledge of all this, environment, everything. Um, I know one of the main reasons for people getting deferred is, you know, sort of navigation for a lot of people. So mountain leader training, as an example, is so involved when it comes to navigation that once you've just done your training for mountain leading that you actually apparently it does uh, mean that you can already teach nav to people um at uh, you know you sort of, sort of looking sort of like dv level already you know which is the reason why a lot of mountain leaders do get work as sort of dv assessors yeah because they've already got that skill set there um I mean, I think, and lastly as well, um, there are, pointing to it, there are modules that are available for free on the MTA site, such as uh, so there's mountain building, where you, tell, you learn about erosion and so on. The free courses, always good to go on. Um, also, things like the weather. Uh, you'd be surprised, actually, there's a, a fair bit of weather knowledge in there as well, identifying different clouds, weather patterns, things like that, actually reading sort of uh, actual weather reports properly. Um, there's a lot to it. Yeah, so. <laughs> if, if, if you really want to get in deep with um, natural uh, signs, tracks, clues and signs and weather and everything else, Tristan Gooley's books are, are amazing. He's got a whole thing on how to read water, how to read the weather, how to read, say, the, the patterns of lichen on the side of a tree and all that. So, yeah, 
that that would be my recommendation for people if they really want to go deep with with that sort of stuff because everything grows in reeds for a reason i mean yesterday we were out on uh, anglesey and we were at the in the newborough forest and we could just see all of the the branches of the trees were leaning inland away from the sea mm. i mean that gives you a major clue to navigation and it's something interesting to talk about with clients and it's it's another kind of uh, arrow in your quiver I think one of the other things as well is sort of making that distinction between what you do as a mountain leader, um, that it's not rock climbing or anything like that, but there is some rope work that's involved that are, it's essential to know if you're going to pass. Um, and then you're looking at things like setting up body belays, how to guide people on a confidence rope, um, also how to sort of choose anchors, if you're moving on steep ground so these are all things you're also going to need to know but you don't need to know it to like a rock climbing level effectively it's just for safety on steep ground but you are going to need to know that as well um, all skills that really you need to go out into this kind of environment and practice um, you can practice them at home if you have a tree or you just so happen to have a massive boulder in the back garden you can pr practice techniques but personally to me i don't think there's ever going to be any substitute to actually coming out here with somebody else who's potentially doing the same sort of thing um, and learning them yeah so, so we say we've kind of covered pretty much the the syllabus mm. there so so you have you have your six days mm. and then then what happens between that and your assessment is essentially up to you to just go out and get more quality mountain days effectively and yes so the stage that i'm at at the moment is uh i think it's always better to go for more especially if you're lucky enough to live out somewhere like this yeah i um, mean that's that's the thing to talk about is that if you're serious about mountain leader you probably should consider moving somewhere to to mountains because it makes it so much easier if you're not commuting like three hours every weekend out into the middle of yeah, I mean, technically, every single time I step out the door could be a mountain of the day, you know. <laughs> Just getting up to your cottage is a mountain day. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's part way up the back and sort of uh, heading towards the Mulwins. So, yeah. Um, but I'd say go for more. If they say you need another 20 and go for another 40, I'd always go for like a double. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, you're also going to be it's working on that fitness you. as well. Um but you want to show the improvement on the skills that you got on the first training course. Uh, you also need to bear in mind that any of the mountains that you did on your training course, they're not going to accept as part of your mountain days. Um, you can go back and do it again yourself, but you can't yeah. count the ones that you did there. Um, you've also got the option, something that I'm going to be doing fairly soon, is uh, going out and helping already established leaders, already established businesses take people out. Um, there are a lot of businesses out there that will actually let you work for them and you can get paid uh, at just a trained mountain leader. Um, however, obviously, it's always best to get qualified and one of the main reasons is going to be because of insurance. So for me, if I wanted to get insurance at this point, it would cost me an absolute fortune, wouldn't really be worth it. However, if I go out with a group, they've already got their own insurance, which covers me. Um, it means I get to go out with a group, you'll get to go out with somebody and see how they do it. It also gives you the option to go out with multiple different people and get an idea. Um, yeah. And it, it starts that whole 
business of, of networking, getting known by the by people that, that may well want your, your services at some point. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, you've got to build those links as well. Um, I think realistic for me, I've realised that I'm not going to just jump straight into going, right, I am a freelancer straight away. Um, it's going to be a case. I'll probably work with a few people maybe for a couple of years before I can go right actually I can do my own thing um, you like, know, like with, with most things that you, you want to build up a client book mm. you want to, to have a number of people who are repeat clients or whatever that you know you can rely on that, that can then bridge that gap from going okay I'm, I'm going from this network of contacts to on my own and that's that's it's standard business practice coming out here as well uh, you're going to meet the right kind of people you're going to meet the different businesses there's a wide variety of different mountain leading businesses there's i mean just in the area we're in there's at least two different sort of outdoor centers just down towards uh, beth gallet um, there's they're everywhere here um, and that's also comes down to the fact there actually is a fair demand for them these days as you probably aware yourself after covid i think a lot more people got into the outdoors um so there is work out there uh, anecdotally some of the instructors i've used have been in the position where they've actually been you know passing clients on to other instructors because they can't physically do all of them or they're not hitting on the right days um, so that networking side of things is really important, I'd say. Um, you, know, you know yourself personally that you, know, you can get lots of inquiries, but they, they don't always sit in the right order. <laughs> yeah, don't always translate into bookings that don't necessarily link up with your schedule. Yeah, the best thing to do as well is to say, if you are really serious about it, you might want to think about seeing how you can move out to an area like this. It's difficult. Uh, obviously, I work for the YHA, so I actually work up at Penna Pass. I mean, really ideally situated. Uh, one of the Absolutely. only people that's crazy enough to want to come and live out in these woods by himself. Um, and obviously, there are sacrifices to that. Um, you got to really love it out here. It's the winters are difficult. <laughs> yeah, but, but it lets you cut down your your whole kind of period of gathering skills and experience from what could could be like two years or whatever oh yeah and down to That's down to one down to months because you as you say you just step out and you're out in it whereas different if you need to travel three four hours and saying that is there actually a, a time limit between your training and the assessment no not really uh, i mean you can do it pretty much whenever you really want um but obviously the longer you leave it Potentially, if you don't live out here already or if you're not on it all the time, it's going to become less and less useful. Um, you want to really get out after your training and start using it as soon as you possibly can and keep on top of those skills. Because uh, you might have done the training. It does obviously mean that you can go on to your assessment whenever you want, but really it's down to you as to whether you're ready or not, you know. Uh, and you want to get it right because it's not a cheap course it's 400 pounds at least there are places that do it cheaper but you're looking in the range of about 300 400 slightly more depending on who you go with 
for the initial training and then for the assessment which is about 400 actually that that's not that's not too bad for a six-day course that's, that's uh, really good yeah i mean again the the assessment's going to be over a same sort of time period uh and you're going to go out and the assessment is tough so um the instructors aren't necessary they're not going to tell you when you go wrong they're not going to say you got that wrong. They will tell you yeah. when you finish at the end. So yeah, you want to make yeah, it's sure. Kind of you... like the, the driving instructors, like. Just, it's like a bit like that. Yeah, they're not going to tell you. Yeah, you need to suss out when you've made a mistake. Um, and obviously, yeah, it's for the kind of course it is. It's not that expensive, but it's still, if you look at it, a lot of money. Yeah. Got to be serious. It it's, it sounds like also from from what you were saying earlier that they that if you think you've made a mistake it's probably best to vocalize that and go, hey, okay, I'm, I think I've made a mistake and this is how I'm correcting it rather than let it just pass. Yeah, and, exactly. And because if, if, they, if they know that you, you're aware of it, they'll, they'll look at you a bit more friendly. <laughs> If, if you know that you're aware of it and that you know how you would have fixed it it can actually potentially work out more in your favor than just getting it bang on straight right straight away because you've looked at it they can see that you know how to problem solve you know um being getting it right all the time it would be great but we've got to be realistic with ourselves we're human beings and we don't so, uh, and I'd say this comes from my, my background as teaching as well, is um, the worst mindset you can possibly have coming into this is assuming that you know everything. Yeah. Just assume that, have confidence, but, you know, listen, try and pick up the extra skills and just accept the fact that, you know, you are always constantly learning. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think that's, that's probably a good place to, to start to, wrap up so so we so we're about so what's what's next for yourself i mean where, where do people go to find more about mark and so i'm still running the blog at requiem for the extreme .com. um so that has most of my adventures on but it's now having uh, gear reviews on there as well there are small bits of bushcraft as well that i've been picking up from our friend bracken here um, things that I feel actually align quite well with some of the stuff that I do. Um, I'll be looking at doing more gear reviews in the future as well, hopefully for some brands. Um, and the other thing is just some how-to guides as well. So, um, you know, what to do when you're going out for assessment, how to pack bags, anything that I feel that could be useful for general. Uh, there's going to be a whole section on how to contact you know what mountain rescue and what's doing a rescue situation um soon you'll have a fair bit of wealth and knowledge on there i'd say and obviously the uh the guiding thing will be coming up soon so um got a few sort of days coming up where we're going to be leading some groups and then um well obviously on to assessment and then the, there'll be um, guiding opportunities available from myself uh, yep and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely let people know when when that happens and we might well get you on after the assessment to talk about about your maybe maybe after you've led a few groups and whatnot out your experiences how what it looks like what the landscape looks like once you're actually trained oh yeah um, but they'll definitely be so last question yep. people looking to get into kind of outdoor leadership do you have any advice for them 
I think uh, you've got to really decide whether you love the outdoors a lot um, or whether you do it purely for yourself uh, at the end of the day. Um, I'd say for me, I am quite an introverted person. That's, that's for Some sure. Some of the best people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, however, I really do love teaching people things and I have a massive enthusiasm for the environment and just generally for nature and being out there, which I love to share with anyone, really. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'd say the general advice is some of the things that we've already discussed is how serious are you about this? Um, I've completely changed my life. I live in a totally different area of the UK now. I've completely uprooted. I've changed my job. Um, it's a big step. Yeah, it's, 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 it's lifestyle. It's not necessarily a job. Yeah, yeah, it's an everyday thing. I mean, this is the thing. I don't... There is no popping to the shops out here. Yeah. You know, um, you are in the middle of nowhere. It can be quite tough just living in the mountains, working in the mountains, even working for organisations such as the YHA. They've got some lovely properties in some very isolated places in the UK. Penna Pass, where I work, is a great example. Um, it is incredibly isolated out here, even with the visitors that we have at Snowden. This particular valley here, as we all, we've all enjoyed over this sort of week, um, you won't see anybody sometimes for days. Um, can you handle that? Yeah. What kind of person are you? Are you happy being by yourself? You will spend a lot of time in the mountains alone. Um, yeah. If you're cool with that then, and you love nature and you love learning and you like an adventure, maybe it's for you. Absolutely. Great advice. Well. Thanks, Mark. It's been really, really good catching up with you. Yeah, um, definitely, man. Yeah, we'll get you Always on again. Always a pleasure. You, you're, the, you're actually the first returning guest to the podcast, so. Oh. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> as well as the first podcast guest, so you got, you got the two. Oh, yeah, winner. <laughs> and I'm still here. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did conduct the interview with Mark. He's an extremely knowledgeable person and if you'll agree, he's, he's just lived, for me, it feels like he's living the dream out there in Snowdonia and I, I feel a little bit envious that I'm not able to move into, say, the wilds of Scotland and live that sort of lifestyle, but I will make the best with what I have right here, right now. As always, I will have all of the links and everything else on my website, and the link for that will be Bracken Outdoors Pod. It'll be brackenoutdoors.com forward slash episode 18. And you can find all of the links, resources, everything there. Before we go, I'd just like to remind you that if you enjoyed this, please do share it with um, people you think might get something out of it. And if you're interested in taking a course with me or checking out any of the resources I have, you can go to brackenoutdoors.com. So, until next time, have a great month and make the most of the outdoors. <laughs>